0: every show is a dose of inspiration this is success profiles radio and now here's your host brian k wright
1: Hello and welcome to Success Profiles Radio. I'm your host, Brian K. Wright, and it is an absolute pleasure to be with you here today. I'm honored that you chose to spend part of your day with me here, and this is going to be a fantastic and amazing show. I'll be introducing my guests shortly, and I promise this will be a fun and informative hour. It will be terrific. I do want to take a minute or two to share some things I've been learning and thinking about lately, and I typically do this every single week. Lately, I've been thinking about the idea of asking for what you want. One of the reasons for this is because I've been listening to an audio for a book called The Aladdin Factor by Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield. I recommend it very highly. It's about this exact same topic, the power of asking for what you want. And again, it's called The Aladdin Factor. It may seem simple, but the truth is that a lot of people don't ask for what they want because they may have self-limiting beliefs around whether or not people want to help them or even that they don't feel like they deserve the help that they want. We won't reach our highest levels of success without the cooperation of others, and that does frequently involve asking for things. So ask yourself today what you want to accomplish and who you need to help you. Then ask, be specific, and ask someone who is actually capable of granting your request. You will be so glad you did. With this in mind, I want to introduce my very special guest. His name is Dwayne Clark. Let me tell you about him. Dwayne Clark is a thought leader and innovator in the rapidly growing assisted living industry, as well as an accomplished author playwright, restaurateur, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He's the co-founder and CEO of Aegis Living, a company of 2,300 employees across the Midwest, serving residents in 30 assisted living communities with 10 new ones in development. He's also nationally known for the quality of projects he manages. Dwayne is also producer of the film Full Court, the Spencer Haywood story about an iconic Hall of Fame basketball player. He's also the author of numerous books, including A Big Life and the upcoming 30 Summers Left. He's also been featured on The Today Show, The New York Times, NBC, Forbes, and many more. And now here he is on Success Profiles Radio. We will talk about so much on the show today. And before I forget, please download and subscribe to Success Profiles Radio on iTunes. A review would be terrific. I would really highly appreciate that if you would be willing to do that. Here we are with my very special guest, Dwayne Clark. Dwayne, welcome to the show. How are you today?
2: Good morning, Brian. I'm fantastic.
1: Good, good, good. So you are talking to us from Seattle today, aren't you?
2: I am. Sunny Seattle, believe it or not.
1: That is very surprising. Usually you get a ton of rain.
2: Yeah, well, we we try to fool people. That's our brand, but uh, it gets sunny here, here every so often.
1: That's fantastic. So what I usually like to start with, Dwayne, is just to give us a sense of your backstory and how you got to where you are, because I find people's backstory and journey fascinating. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about that
2: well I, I think a lot of my backstory starts very young um, i I was raised by a single mom uh, you know I was the youngest of four children by far my My closest sibling was almost eight years older than than me um, came from a house where my I had an abusive father, uh, physically abusive mentally abusive verbally abusive and i think I think that's germane to a lot of the things that I do in in the culture of our company and i'll talk about that later. And, uh, after my siblings left, I was probably, they all went to college and left the house and I was probably about 10 years old. It was just my mom and I. So my mom had a a terrific and tremendous influence over, you know, the kind of CEO I am today. Wow. Um, you know, we were in you know, a very impoverished lifestyle. So she was, you know, she would work as a cook and, you know, short order cook and so on. So. People of very little means and probably one of the greatest stories that uh, that affected my life was I was kind of a rebellious uh, teenager when I got to about 15 or 16. And the two most important things to me were racing cars and girls. Uh, I'm not necessarily in that order, but those were my priorities in life. Mm -hmm. uh, I skipped school and and, uh, so my mom pulled me out of public school, moved me about uh, 90 miles away where I lived with a family, and she put me in a parochial school, and that, that kind of changed my life around. And wow. uh, she had to move to that town, and get a job, took every resource that she had in her in her bank account to do so, and she got a job as a cook. And she came home one day and kind of looked despondent when she walked in the door and she goes, we don't have any money. And, of course, as a smart aleck, 15-, 16-year-old kid, I go, well, what's new? We never have any money. She didn't say anything, and she walked. we had this tiny one-bedroom apartment. She walked into the kitchen, which was 10 feet from the living room, and she opened the refrigerator, and I can see it like yesterday. As she opened this refrigerator door, the little light came on, and she looked in there, and there was a little can of condensed milk, um, about a half a cube of butter, and an onion. And she closed the refrigerator and turned around to me, and she said, I'm going to have to do something I've never done before. I'm going to have to steal from work so we can eat. And, you know, as a kid trying to make light of the situation, I said, well, why don't you steal some steaks? That would be great. She walked over and gave me a good whack across the face. And she goes, you know, th- this is a real um, desperate moment. I've never stolen anything in my life, but we're going to steal potatoes from my work. i are going to eat potato soup for two weeks. And, you know, as a kid, you're like, OK, is she serious or not? So we, you know, at four o'clock in the morning made this great heist to her work. Had a big bucket and we got I don't know how many potatoes probably you know five pounds of potatoes or something ten pounds of potatoes we brought it back and and we ate potato soup for two weeks but the important thing about that story was that was the the things that she would tell me as we ate our potato soup every day and she would say hey never forget this moment I know she she was a huge cheerleader she'd say you know I know you're going to rise to some level of greatness you'll probably have people working for you and don't don't forget that they're you know, from time to time people struggle and they'll have hard times like this in their life. And you, as a leader, you have to anticipate this and and know your people, have enough emotional intelligence about your people that you anticipate that so they don't have to do this. And that, you know, that happened 40 some years ago that left an indelible impression on me. Um, When I started my company, one of the first things we did was we created the Potato Soup Foundation and I've helped, you know, tons of people with all kinds of things from food to rent to medical expenses to burial expenses, you name it, on and on and on, people with domestic violence and so on. So that, that was a, a, a big turning point for me. But, you know, I think being raised in, a, in, in poverty is, is a great education um, because you can, you can interpret that two ways. You, know, you can interpret it, God, uh, poor me, and, you know, geez, I didn't get the breaks or whatever, I I interpreted it as it, it was kind of rocket fuel for my career. Yeah. I wanted to be as different as possible about my my you know the way I grew up. Yeah. And, you know, for me it's just like, man, I'm going to run from this as fast as I can and use every opportunity, every chance I get to maximize it. And wow. I did. so that that's that's how I grew up and that's that's really fundamental to how I run my company.
1: Absolutely. And this Potato Soup Foundation is helping people, empl- employees within your company, right?
2: Right. Yeah. We help employees. We help employees, family members. Uh, we even help friends of employees. Um, and, uh, you know, we helped. Uh, there was a big fire in Napa last year, as you probably remember. Yes. And, you know, there were several people that that, you know, we had to help because of that. We had employees in that area. Uh, but, you know, we I i signed off on a—I signed every request. Every request comes to me and I signed every one of them. And there was a person that, you know, had put off emergency dental su- surgery for six months and was getting an infection like, hey, no, that's not going to happen. Her boss actually turned in the request and he said, no, you're you're getting dental surgery and you're getting it tomorrow. So, wow. you know, all kinds of things. But, you know, Brian, here's the amazing thing that happened with this, because when when I started uh, the Potato Soup Foundation, I thought, well, I'll fund it personally. The company will fund it. Maybe some of our key senior executives will fund it. So when we started it, one of the things that we wanted it to do was to be a sustainable organization. We have uh, almost 500 line staff. About a third of our line staff um, contribute to this. And we tell people doesn't matter if if it's, you know, Fifty cents a paycheck or whatever, but we've we've created a sustainable organization where people who've never given money in their life to anything are helping their teammates, are helping their fellow employees, and that I think that in itself is remarkable.
1: We've got about three minutes or so to our break. Uh, how did you decide to become an entrepreneur?
2: Geez, I don't know that there's a uh, there, there's a minute in your life where you say, "Hey, tomorrow I'm going to be an entrepreneur." I, I think it's kind of in your blood. I remember as as a kid you know, even in my teens, um I I remember one time I went to, to Seattle and uh and, and and bought a bunch of uh portable cell phones or not cell phones, te- telephones that you plug into the wall. And I took it back to the small town that I lived in and I just put an ad in the newspaper and I sold it for three times as much. I, I just I was always looking for, for ways to make money and 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 do things that were kind of outside uh you know, my, my comfort zone. So, uh, that, that was, uh, I think it's just in your blood. You're just looking to say, Hey, how can I take this and spin it in a different way?
1: Absolutely. So what do you think is your grand mission in life?
2: Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think one of the things I talk a lot about is having people, uh, create artifacts of their life. And, um, you know, you you may say, well, what does that mean? Building something that lasts longer than you do on this planet. And so I think creating an artifact of your life, you know, it's one of the reasons I wrote a play or write books or build buildings or whatever. Those are all artifacts of my life that are going to live a lot longer than I am. And so I I challenge people to think about what is your artifact or artifacts of your life that you're creating?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's all about creating legacy and we will absolutely talk about that topic as we move along because you're a filmmaker, you've written some books, and we'll talk about some of that as we go along. My very special guest this week is Dwayne Clark, and we talked about the Potato Soup Foundation, and I think that is so cool that you created a foundation to help employees and families of your employees because that is so rare in the marketplace. And I love the fact that this was born out of something that you experienced and that you don't want other people to have to go through either. So we will come right back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. Please stay with us. Don't go away. We will return shortly. book the survival guide to living with stress to get the healthy primate stress support supplement today at www.screwstress.com click the amazon logo it'll take you where you need to go once again that is www.screwstress.com And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Dwayne Clark. And if you have not picked up my latest book called Success Profiles, Conversations with High Achievers, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, in the stores, on their website, and everywhere that you possibly could want to find it. So please pick that up. That would be fantastic. So, Dwayne, I want to ask you because you created, you founded and are the CEO of Aegis Living, which is an assisted living facility. How did you get industry get interested in that industry?
2: Well, it's so funny. You know, your your career – are not always intentional, but, um, I, I was right out of, right out of, uh, college. Um, I went and worked for the department of corrections mm. and I did so because I thought I wanted to become this criminal defense attorney. And a friend of mine said, I think you're too nice a guy to do that. You should go, you should go work with felons to see if you really like it. So I, I did that for a few years and I thought, man, what am I doing? I, I hate this job. Yeah. I really did. And uh, my sister called me one day and, and she was on the board of the senior housing company. And she this is in 1985, a long time ago. And she said, you know, you should you should go. This is before we had computers in every home. And she said, you should go uh, down to the library and read this study on the grain of America. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I don't know anything about elderly. I was 26 years old. I said, you know, I know about bank robbers and, you know, murderers and bad people. And she goes, no, no, you should go down and read this study because I think this would be a good job for you. So I went down, read this whole paper on Grain of America. It was hundreds and hundreds of pages long. I became fascinated because essentially the bottom line was the world was going to be populated with older and older people. And as time went on, we would get older and older and older. And I thought, man, this is going to be a booming career. So I I went for my job interview. And I, I think the company... Thought they were hiring me or, or, or excuse me I thought they were interviewing me as a favor to my sister so it was going to be you know kind of a courtesy interview and so I, I kind of knew this in mind. I thought well I have to really impress them so I had a month before the interview and I went and did market research I prepared a whole manual for them so when I walked into the interview I think they thought it was going to be a 10 minute glad to know you nice to meet you I I submitted this whole you know inch and a half thick uh, manual to them about this is what I think the industry should do. This is, I researched your company, I researched your competitors, and so on and so forth. And they were blown away, and uh, they said, "Wow, that's you know, no one's ever done this before." And that's how I started in this industry. So I became, you know, a manager for them, and uh, worked my way up the ranks to vice president of that company. Got recruited away by a, a company called Sunrise, which. Uh, when I was there it was a small company and after four and a half years, we became the largest senior housing company in the world. Um, and, uh, went from being a probably about a $30 million company to we went public and had a three and a half billion dollar market cap.
1: Wow. Wow. So,
2: that's, that's how I started and I started with Aegis in 1997.
1: Wow. So your mom was in a position where she needed this type of care. And so you became your own customer. What was that like? I bet that offered you some interesting perspectives on your own company.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I, at the time I, I told people it's kind of like being the, the men's hair club president. Remember when you used to say, I'm, you know, I'm not only the CEO, I'm a customer as well. Yes. Uh-huh. And so you, you have all of a sudden you have these sensitivities to what's going on. But here's the thing about having an aging parent, Um, you get in tremendous denial about their own aging because in your mind, you want to remember them uh, in a certain way. And so you tend to ignore uh, their aging. And, you know, both my sisters are have been social workers and dealt with elderly issues and so on. And, you know, I've done this now for 30 some years when my mom started getting dementia i'd probably done it 20 years and so you 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 tend to ignore these things and my mom would do things that were kind of out of character and you'd say oh you know she's she's just tired you know she's she's dehydrated whatever and so you know after a while she started displaying some vivid signs of dementia um and w- i mean one of the things she did out of character she started drinking at like 80 you know it's like a, in a severe drinking problem so you know, a lot of these things, uh, again, you look at and you go, well, that's, that's really weird. Well, what's happening is the mind is really changing. The mind is, is, is entering the dementia phase and uh, things that happen during that phase are not characteristic of that person's normal behavior. So my mom uh, entered one of my communities. It was very painful for her and her family. Um, because she, you know, she was still had, had some cognitive ability. So she knew she was going to a place and she did not want to go. So that was, that was difficult for us. And I always tell people the first 90 days are, are the worst adjustment period. And then people start to make friends and get adjustments and have a lifestyle and then it kicks in. And that's exactly how it was for my mom. Um, and my mom ended up living almost seven years in our communities and, actually passed away uh, at the age of, of 87, almost 88 uh, of dementia. But um, what happened for me is it was a great level setting exercise because it, you know, I, I went through it as her son, even though I was the CEO. And so it totally changed the way our company operated based on that experience with my mom.
1: Wow. That is fascinating. That's Wow, that is really great. So for those out there who either are facing or might face someday that decision, what guidelines do you recommend for someone to choose a great facility for their needs?
2: Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, senior housing, assisted living, retirement living, whatever you want to call it, it has as many gradations in it as hotels. And so, you know, if you were to come to Seattle tomorrow and you say, Dwayne, can you recommend a hotel for me? I'd have a lot of questions. I'd say, well, you know, do you want to stay in a bed and breakfast? Do you want to stay at the Four Seasons? Do you want to stay at the Ramana Inn? So there's all these quality levels in terms of senior housing. And, you know, so that's that's one thing you have to think about. But the the whole uh, senior housing segment, the key to it, the very, very key to it is the culture and the management of the company, because you could be in a 40 year old building that's you know, not the shiny new penny, but if you have really great staff, that's the differentiator. And so I, I just ask people, first of all, you have to look at your budget because, you know, you could spend $3,000 a month or you could spend $15,000 a month. That It's it's that, that great of distinction between pricing. Um, I also tell people, you know, this is not the kind of thing you want to go cheap on. Um, it's kind of like, you know, shopping for the cheapest heart surgeon—it's just not one of those decisions that you want to go light on in terms of cost. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I, I tell people to go visit five or six places and see—you'll you'll know within five minutes of walking into a place what the quality difference is. Does the person greet you? Are the, are the staff happy? Do they do they introduce themselves to you when you're walking around? Is there any vivid smells? How's the maintenance in the place? Does it look like there's Things that should be done that are not done. I mean, eat the food. Is the food good? The the one thing I always tell people is go after the normal hours of business. You know, walk in at seven thirty at night. Don't announce yourself and just walk in and say, "I'd like to tour," and see how you're greeted. See how the place is. See see what uh, you know. How the staff react to you? Do they go, "Oh no, you, you can't come in now"? Well, if you if they say that, that's that's a problem. Yeah, uh, because they're they're probably. They, they don't want you to see something that you probably should, should see. Right. So there's all kinds of tips, but you know, those are a few of them.
1: Yeah. I love that. Thank you for all those suggestions. You had a book not that long ago called a big life and you've got a new book coming out. We'll talk about both of those, uh, your book, a big life. What made you decide to write this? And this came out about a year ago, didn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's been not quite a year, but it's, it's quite an evolution of this book and I've been kind of shocked at the success of it. what, the story, the backstory to this is I, I have eight grandchildren now expecting my ninth here in May. And, you know, as as I aged, I wanted to leave those kids something more than material things. And I thought, well, what could I leave them? And I thought, well, the coolest thing you can leave your your children is 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 wisdom. Right. Mm-hmm. So I sat down. This is probably five years ago. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to write this book on wisdom. Things I Want My Grandchildren to Know. And I thought this would take me like two or three weeks. It t- ended up taking me three years. Because if, you, if somebody sits down and says, tell me all the wisdom you know, first of all, you change your mind on what's really important, what's not important. But beyond that, you start looking and saying, wow, this this is I really have to do this right. So I started writing this book, and I'm a member of this organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and I've been quite active in it. And now I'm in the over 50 group. And and so I would I would meet with groups of CEOs and I told them about, hey, I'm going to write this book for my for my uh, grandchildren. It's going to be I'm going to depart wisdom on things that I learn. And at this one particular breakfast, there's about 12 or 13 CEOs. And I told them the importance of this in the story. A couple guys started to tear up. I thought, wow, wh- what's this about? And they started telling me, you know, God, I wish my dad would have done that. I miss him so much. I wish my grandfather would have done that. I wish my mom would have done that. And so I went back and I told the story to our to our PR people, and uh, I said, Well, maybe this book is just not meant for your grandchildren. Maybe there's a wider purpose here. And they said, Well, what if we made this into a game where you t- you have some die and you roll it, and it corresponds to a page number or one of the parables in the book, and that. That page is meant to facilitate a conversation amongst family members that ask them about their history that's maybe long forgotten stories that have never been told so as we we wrote the book in a whole different way turned it into this game and I've been shocked at how people said you know I make my child put down their iPhone or their iPad and you know now we go on a we go in the car for a, a road trip and you know we play big life and we hear about my wife's grandfather that she's never told us about before, and what he did for work, and so on and so forth, or people take it on summer trips and so on. So it's really facilitated great conversation. And again, it gets back to that point about artifacts and legacy. Now you actually know it's this is my rich history that I have that maybe you would have never you never had those conversations before. And you know we we hide behind technology so much this more that we don't really talk about legacy and history as much as we should. So it's been a great success.
1: Wow. And we can find that on Amazon, right?
2: That's correct. It's being sold on Amazon.
1: It's called A Big Life.
2: A Get big it. Life. Yep. Change.
1: Yeah. Yep. Or or yeah, that's right. We'll come right back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio, my very special guest is Dwayne Clark, and we will talk about his upcoming book called 30 Summers Left after the break, and we'll talk about the importance of having a great culture in your organization, and we'll talk about hiring, and we'll talk about customer service, and so much more. We'll come right back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. If you want to know more about how to write a nonfiction book, whether it's business, self-help, or how-to, reach out to me at ww.briankwright.com for more information. Once again, that's you. And we're back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Dwayne Clark. If you have not downloaded and subscribed to Success Profiles Radio on iTunes, please go ahead and do that. I would love that very, very much. And Dwayne has another book coming out very shortly called 30 Summers Left. What is this about, Dwayne?
2: Well, it's it's a book about wellness and longevity. And uh, you know, it's 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 interesting in that um you know, I've I've cared for almost Probably over sixty thousand people in the course of my career, and I always wondered why do some people live longer than others? And you know, it's it's not the things you typically think about, like genetics. Everybody's like, "Well, it's my genes." You know, my my mom lived to ninety, so I am going to live to ninety. Well, genetics only plays, you know, you, if you can get genetic geneticists to agree on what the exact number and number is, but it's about eighteen to twenty two percent of your longevity is based on your genes. So, you know, it's not a given that if your parents lived a certain length, you're going to live to a certain length. So that in itself started fascinating me about well, what are the factors. And so, you know, I worked on this book for five years. I, I have an MD that co-wrote it with me. I had a PhD on my research team. And we, we went to different countries. We studied different cultures. We looked at everything we could possibly look at and get our hands on that, uh, you know, made people live as long as they did. And I tell this story in the book that when I was a young administrator at a retirement home, we had these two guys that I would talk to every day. And one was a doctor. He was about 79 years old. And he was, you know, a very healthy guy in terms of his appearance. He's probably five foot eight, 140 pounds, ate, you know, the perfect meals every day. He would go out for a long walk after every day. He'd been a physician for 45 years, you know, really smart guy. And then, but he wasn't very happy. And his wife was would kind of henpick him and tell him he, he shouldn't eat the second half of his sandwich. And, he you know, he would always kind of hang his head and he would be despondent. And then we had this other guy who was a farmer. And you could hear him coming down the hallways because he would be screaming and telling jokes and people would be laughing. And he, on the other hand, was about 5'8". And he was about 290 pounds. And he thought, oh, God, he's just not very healthy. And uh, he would go in the dining room and he'd say, I want some pig and eggs for breakfast and everybody would crack up, you know, and he was the life of the party and he was the chairman of the resident council and, you know, he'd been a farmer, lived outdoors all his life for many, many years, you know, working in the farm and so on. And uh, I came into work one day and they said, you know, the doctor had passed away at the age of 79 and Carl, the farmer, went on to live, you know, another decade. And, and, you know, you think of that and you're like, why is that? And that that started at a very early age. That was almost 30 years ago that I started thinking, why do people live as long as they do? And what are the factors? And, you know, Harvard has done one of the longest running studies on longevity that there is out there. Um, And uh, they've done it for almost 80 years now. In fact, I think it just celebrated its 80 year anniversary. And there's still a couple people in their, in their late 90s that they've been studying. And what they found was a surprising thing about longevity. It wasn't nutrition. It wasn't exercise. It wasn't genetics. It wasn't all the things we typically think about. What they found was a person that was in a marriage, a happy marriage, happy marriage key, by the age of 50 will live as long as eight to 10 years longer than a person that's in an unhappy relationship. So the person you're married to, the, the, the spouse, the partner, whatever, if you have a happy marriage, that, that has never been brought forward together. So there's all kinds of things that will make us live long, um, and most of the things that you, you won't typically think about.
1: Wow. That, that's, that does make a lot of sense. If you're in a happy relationship, you should probably live longer than someone who's not happy because the, our mind and our body work together. And if, if you are focused on positive things, then positive things will come to you. So it's a cycle, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it, it's, it definitely is. I often tell people, you know, whatever you focus on, like, like I talk in the book about the segment, my wife doesn't like any violent TV. And so she would make me, you know, when we started dating, she started, said, I, there will be no, violent television in our house because you're programming your brain as to this is this is what you like and so you know for people who are watching some violent program or some news program that's talking about somebody being murdered and then they go right to sleep it has a it has an overflow into your sleep which is one of my foundational principles about longevity sleep is the restorative part of 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 what happens to, to help your cells restore. There's two things that happen during sleep. One is your body detoxifies. And, you know, it, it flushes your system of all the cells that are bad for you, all the cells that have died. You don't want those in your body because lots of bad things happen if those things are not flushed out of your system. One of them could be dementia, all The other thing that happens is your, your body turns into a factory and it needs at least seven hours to recreate, regenerate the cells, the good cells that are gonna help you live a long, long life. And so, you know, sleep is foundational for everything uh, in, in, in terms of your health and your cell regeneration. And it's one of the keys, absolutely keys, to longevity. And, and as Americans, we're sleep deprived. You know, we say, oh, I can go on five hours. I can go on six hours. You really can't. You may be able to get out of bed and go through the motions, but your body is act- actually suffering. And wow. and it's not only the seven hours of sleep, but it's the kind of sleep you get. Are you getting, are you getting into the deep sleep, which, and REM sleep, which is that, that's where the most efficient cell production takes place.
1: Yeah. So you discuss micro habits in this book. Are some of those things among those micro habits that you talk about in the book?
2: Absolutely. I mean, the book's divided into a variety of levels, sleep being one of them, you know, purpose being another, um, But, you know, like a simple habit that almost everybody I talk to picks up once I tell them about it, you know, going back to how you detoxify your system, you know, 90 percent of America, when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is they go to the bathroom and the second thing they do is go drink a cup of coffee. Well, think about what happens. You can you can lose up to 20, 25 ounces of fluid during the night. You sweat, your body's detoxing, it's working hard to get rid of these things. And then you go put a cup of coffee in your body. Well, what is coffee? Coffee dehydrates you. So, you know, you may think you get a jolt out of it and you're like, oh, I feel so better after I have my coffee. Part of that's psychological. Part of it's just the caffeine jolting you up. The first thing you should do, actually, before you even go to the bathroom, is have a tall glass of water that's 10 or 12 ounces on your nightstand. And as you sit up in bed, down that whole glass of water and then go to the bathroom. And that will get rid of your brain fog. It will start your metabolism and your day will start entirely different. I guarantee it. This this will start your day dramatically different. You'll notice the brain fog will lift. You'll be more alert. And then if you want, if you you have to have your coffee, you know, wait 15, 20 minutes for that water to flush your body out. Then go have your cup of coffee. But your day will start, start very, very different if you do that.
1: Oh, yeah. You have to be hydrated. I mean, if you have a headache, maybe all you really need to do is to drink a tall glass of water to get rid of that that headache.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it's your vessels constricting because they don't have hydration.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. Let's talk about uh, your organization specifically. As, as this is a, a personal development and business type of show, I would love to explore the idea of culture within your organization. And I know that that's very, very important to you culture is the most important currency in business right
2: oh it's everything it's absolutely everything and you know what from the from the day one when we started the company um, I, I wanted to be an employee first business I wanted to be the most phenomenal culture you could be and here we are the company's you know 21 years old I think in various publications we won best company to work for 15 times. Um, a year ago, we were Glassdoor to top 50 uh, companies to work for out of over 700,000 companies nominated. Um, so, you know, we've we've won numerous awards for our culture. Um, and you know, you really it really has to start at the CEO level when you think about this. Um, I oftentimes have vice presidents of HR call me or VP of operations and say, well tell me how I can implement a great culture in our company. I said, well, the first thing you have to do is have your CEO call me because unless your CEO is a madman with a mission, a passionate person about culture, nothing's going to, nothing's going to change in your organization. So yeah. everything we do is about culture. I mean, from the way we recruit to the architecture of our office, to the art we have up to, you know, the way we structure our benefits program, everything I've, you know, we, we changed offices about two years ago, and before that, I was walking around our old office, and one of our uh, HR people gave me a recruiting brochure to look at and said, well, what do you think of this? And so I was reading this, and I was walking around our old office, and I was reading, and I thought, well, how is someone going to be able to see the soul of our company from this flat piece of paper with a few pictures? And as, a, as I was saying this to myself, I'm looking at our office, and I'm, I'm looking at the architecture and the art, and it was a very nice building. It's beautiful. I said, "Does this really speak to the soul of our company? If somebody comes here, are they going to be able to tell about our personality? Because they're going to give me their working life. Is that is that really doing?" And as I had this kind of epiphany, I thought, "No, no, it really doesn't." So I'm going to sell this building. I'm going to buy a new building. I'm going to strip it down to the studs, and I'm going to actually build a building and a culture and and workrooms and artwork and art displays that speak to the soul of our company. And that's what we did. I mean, we have a, a custom chopper um, in the middle of our of our office. I mean, why, why would you do that? And above it, there's this hallmark, and it says disruptive, because we want people to know that we're disruptive thinkers. And we have wow. some of the greatest thinkers in the world around that motorcycle, you know, Jeff wow. Bates, Bill, Go- Bill Gates, Howard Schultz. Elon Musk, you know people that think differently,
1: yeah, and you encourage employee feedback, I mean, you really encourage it, some people are afraid of it,
2: yeah, we have a we have a thing called the black box that 's in every community, and we reward people for giving us disruptive ideas and the essence of the backstory of that is when I was at my previous company i'd go in i I was kind of an idea machine. And so I'd go into our CEO and I'd say, well, I think we should do this." And he'd be like, well, you know, I don't know, we've kind of always done it this way. So every time he rejected me with an idea, I'd stuff these ideas into this black box. That black box became the foundation, the blueprint, the you know, the, 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 the term sheet, if you will, for uh, you know, our company. It was the business plan. So I never wanted to say no to an employee for an idea. In fact, we wanted to encourage him. And that's why we started the Black Box. And and the Black Box has come up with phenomenal ideas. And we pay people if these ideas are implemented. And the best ideas come from your line staff, people on the front lines that are talking and seeing the customer every day and knowing what's what and so on. So, yeah, that's that's how I think you create a thriving culture is by having your employees' input.
1: That is fantastic. We are coming up against our final break. I cannot believe how quickly this is going. My very special guest is Dwayne Clark. And Dwayne, real quickly, where will we be able to get the book 30 Summers Left?
2: Yeah, it's going to be on Amazon. Uh, It'll be released probably the end of April. And uh, just look for it.
1: Fantastic. All right. We will come right back shortly. This is Success Profiles Radio. Please stay with us. Don't go away. We will be right back.
0: Has been around as long as there have been hotels where discretion was a bitter part of value. One lecturer at Cornell University's School of Hotel Administration traces the "do not disturb" sign roots to the aristocracy of the early 20th century at grand establishments such as the Ritz in Europe. It sure is annoying when you just want to be a slug of bed and someone knocks at the door and says, "Housekeeping." What's the word for the semi-conscious state between sleep and wakefulness? Hypnopompic. There are days when I wish I could wear a do not disturb sign around my neck. What do you call someone who wants to lay in bed all day? A scubber I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app to Funny for Words.
1: Hiring is something that obviously is very important to any organization and having a great culture also is very, very important to the way that you hire people. You do something really unusual when you hire people. You let people interview each other in groups, peer interviews. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. You know, it's not what you typically think. It's it's not where, uh, you know, you, one person goes in and they're being interviewed by a group of staff. It's exactly the opposite. We we'll, We may bring in. 15 candidates that are interviewed by four or five staff at the same time. And what happens is there's this group dynamic that's displayed and you, you start to identify traits amongst people that you would never, ever get in a one-on-one interview. For instance, one of the things that happens that, that people are not even uh, aware of is we may have 15 people come in and they'll wait in, in the reception area You know, and we may be five or ten minutes late for the interview, and we want to see how they react. So this is actually a laboratory experiment. Or you may have the guy who's a jerk that comes in and goes, "God, these directions were crap, and you know, it took me. I'm three minutes late, and this is what. Well, you know, you got a guy who's negative, an excuse maker, or if if you have the the interview start ten minutes late, these people are sitting there, and you start to hear somebody talk to other people. I can't believe these people. They're so late. You know, on and on and on. So the interview actually starts before the interview actually starts. And so meanwhile, the receptionist has each one of these people's names and and writing down characteristics or traits of all these people. It's a phenomenal uh, kind of introspective view into people's personalities and who they really are. And it's funny Then you know, the vice president will come out and they'll greet them. They'll say, hi, I'm Joe, you know, and their personality. Oh, hello. Hello, Mr. Smith. You know, Joe, it's great to meet you. I've heard so much about you. So their their personalities may go from this very negative person who's griping and maybe even treating the receptionist, the receptionist poorly to this person that now there's a person of authority, they're going to kiss up to them. Right. And, you know, we, we do all kinds of things. Once we get them in the actual group, we have group exercises. And we see who are the natural leaders. We see people that are passive. We see people that um, yield. To other people and give praise to other people. So all kinds of information uh, come out of this group. Um, and then we ask them, beside yourself, who who would you elect? Who would you hire? Who would you who would you pick? You've now been with these people. It's about a three-hour process. Who would you hire in this process? So they have to, and and you see commonality. You see, you know, out of fifteen people, usually one person has seven or eight votes. So it's overwhelming. Wow. And they're getting information by these people when they're off the spotlight that uh, is very validating and they'll write down things for us. And so we may not have seen this about Joe, but he said this, you know, when he was off camera. Uh, So there's so, you know, we have to be really sophisticated about when we hire people now and asking people just the one on one questions. People are so prepared for interviews now that you want to get information about people that um, that's going to help you make a decision about, are not only they're their best fit for their job, but are they a great fit for your culture as well? And that's one of the things that the group interviews, too.
1: That's fantastic. You learn things about people that you would probably never get in a traditional interview.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Fantastic. So let's talk about creating a world-class customer service, because having a really great reputation in the marketplace is part of your culture, too. So how do you create that? I mean, if you do it right, they can be your biggest fans.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it all starts with culture. You know, people are probably getting sick of me saying that word, but you have to hire people that are like minded in terms of mission. And, you know, people people don't really leave companies because, you know, they they didn't like the pay scale. I mean, some may do that, but really they're leaving your culture because they're not agreeing with it. If you can band people together under a common purpose, a common mission, a common culture, like some of the great brands do, like Apple does or Google does, or Starbucks does, or Nordstrom's does, you know, it's it's you create this really great culture of service. And it's just like being raised in a family. You know, Brian, you were raised in a different family than, than I was, but we each of our families had values and expectations for people. Mm-hmm. And when you go outside those values and expectations. You get into the margin. And then your parent lets you know, hey, you're outside the margin here, you need to get back within. It's kind of like a sesame street exercise when they used to go, which of these things are not like the others? So if you create a tight enough culture, a, a tight enough organization, and you will see people that are operating outside the margin, and they will be the person that are not like the others. And that's that's how you create commonality. You know, in, in families, it's called manners. You know, you have a certain expectation for manners, or how you treat guests in your house, and so on. It's no different at cultures and big companies. You create this expectation of how you service people, and if somebody doesn't do it, they're outside the culture. They're not like the rest. They're in the margin. And so uh, you join you join that culture. You're just not joining a company. You're joining that expectation, that set of expectations, that set of values to how you're going to operate. And of course, there's training that goes with that and everything else. But once you're inside that environment, you tend to mold yourself because you see how everybody else is acting. So it's actually, if you have a strong brand, a strong culture, it's actually easy to adapt to being very customer service focused.
1: Absolutely. And you actually encourage people to leave your company. Tell us about that because that's a little out of the box too.
2: Yeah, well, we have this annual meeting. I started probably sixteen, seventeen years ago. Called Epic. Epic stands for Empower People, Inspire Consciousness. And it was it was pretty uh, innovative at the time. It first of all, I just clarify for your listeners, it has nothing to do with assisted living, with seniors, with Alzheimer's, with dementia, with anything like that. It it has nothing. It's all about um, kind of a personal self development conference. Had about 120 of my staff to go to, so we have some invited guests. We've even had CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, you know, come and sit in the audience. And we have world-class speakers. We have eight to ten world-class speakers. We've had everybody from Deepak Chopra to Sylvester Stallone, Sharon Stone. Um, we've had uh, President Vicente Fox of Mexico, um, Diane Keaton, Susan Sarandon, uh, you know, on and on and on. And each year there's a theme, um, so one year it may be about judgment, one year it may be about uh, health, and so on. And these people come in and give very personal stories of their own life how it fits with the theme. So the first thing that I do is I get up and I give the opening remarks, kind of the state state of where where I am with the company. Nothing to do specifically with the company, but kind of about the conference and. I tell people I, I'm going to invite you to leave the company. And if you go through this three day conference and you have some epiphany that this is not the road you're supposed to be on, that you want to take another path, I invite you to leave the company. Not only do I invite you to leave the company, I will use every resource that I have, short of giving you a check, to make contacts, to give you advice, to help you write a business plan, whatever it is. And then and then we'll celebrate this as you leave. We'll have a party, we'll 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 celebrate you. We'll say good things about you and so on. The first year I did this, probably 15, 16 years ago, four four or five of my direct reports left in four months. And wow. When the, fifth, when the fifth guy came in, I thought, this is the stupidest thing I ever did. I'm going to ignore this request. I'm going to pretend I didn't say I'm going to help him celebrate. And I thought about this with my head and my hands in my office for about 10 minutes. And I thought, nah, that's not the right thing to do. And, and we went out, we celebrated the fifth person leaving and so on. But since then, you know, a, a few people have left, but very few. Um, and the reason I do this is I don't want anyone to be held hostage thinking I have to be here because of my paycheck or because, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's, I want people in my company that are fully all in. They're passionate. It's in their heart. It's in their DNA. And they love the company. I don't I don't want to hold anyone prisoner into my company. And I think if more CEOs did that, they would have vibrant cultures. They would have cultures that that uh, you know the people who were there were really there for the right reasons. And yeah. They wouldn't listen wow. the company on their break and so on and so forth. So it's a big part of who we are.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. So it is my philosophy that all great leaders are also readers. And so tell us about one or two of the most influential books you've ever read.
2: Oh boy. You know, I read a lot. I probably one of the most influential books that I read was the popcorn report by faith popcorn.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, because she was a futurist and not, not so, like one of the things she predicted. And this was back in the early nineties. Um, you know, she predicted cocooning how everything would be done in our home and look at it today. Everything from Amazon to Netflix is done in our home. You know, and that was, she was pred- predicting that in 92, 93. Um, so that made me start thinking, how do I be more forward thinking? How do I think in the future? How do I, um, you know, ha- how do I try to have predictive uh, corporate thinking? So that was a big influence. Another book that I read was called The Oz Principle. And uh, it what I took out of that book, and I made my entire senior staff read it, um, was really about accountability. And one of the things, speaking of culture, that we have, is we have this philosophy about above-the-line behavior, and meaning that you can't gossip about someone. You, if you have a problem with someone, you have to go right to them and tell them the problem they have, or you're being below the line. And that that was a game-changer in our company and our culture. because we've. And the, and the other responsibility is if so you heard someone doing it, gossiping, you'd go to them and say, you're being below the line, but talk to that person. Wow. So that, that created a huge dynamic in our company where people had to be accountable for how they behaved that, that was a big thing for us. So those are two books that really influenced our culture.
1: Fantastic. Less than two minutes until the end, the question I ask everyone, who inspires and motivates you?
2: Wow, that was a good question. I, th- I think, obviously, as I've said before, I, my mother uh, probably was the greatest influencer in, in from a non-business t- standpoint. Um, and I think because... She always talked about confidence, how you have to believe in yourself when no one else believes in you. And, you know, the old adage that it's lonely at the top. So you better be your best cheerleader. Right. And, you know, think deep down that, yeah, I can do this. I can be this. I can accomplish this.
1: Awesome. And, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, your book, 30 Summers Left, is available on Amazon at the end of April. Is that right?
2: That's right. Please go out and get it. It'll help you live longer. So Great.
1: How can we reach out to you and learn more about you real quick?
2: Well, uh, I have my own website, duanejclark.com. You can go on that. Um, you can always contact me at uh, duane.clark at agis, A-E-G-I-S, living, dot com. So I'd be happy to answer questions for any of your guests. And thanks for having me on, Brian. It's been great. Thank,
1: thank you, Duane. And thanks all of you for listening to Success Profiles Radio this week. Join us every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern where I interview another world-class achiever, learn what they did, what they overcame, and the lessons we can gain from that. Have a great week, everyone. Talk to you soon.
0: Thank you for being a part of Success Profiles Radio with your host, Brian K. Wright. Each week, we'll explore different aspects of success and have.